Welcome to Points of Departure, a podcast from the Arkansas Global Changemakers in coordination with KUAF Public Radio. Where we aim to place pressing social issues into global context. And bring communities together to find local solutions to global challenges. My name is Lawrence Hare, Associate Professor of History in the Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences. And I am Rogelio Garcia Contreras, Teaching Assistant Faculty in the Walton College of Business. And I'm Daniel Carruth, a producer and reporter for KUAF Public Radio. And we're your hosts for Points of Departure. Coming up on this episode of Points of Departure. Capitalism relies on a certain fantasy that is inherently unrealizable. Is there a future of capitalism? Lawrence and Rogelio sit down with author and professor Todd McGowan to discuss how capitalism has shaped our world and what its future, if any, may look like. That's coming up on this episode of Points of Departure. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Points of Departure. One of the things that we want to do, especially after we're coming out of the pandemic when it seemed that everything was sort of frozen in time, is maybe take an opportunity to look to the future and think about the future not only of the, of the challenges, but also some of the strategies that we employ and uh, some of the context and structures in which we work. And that's exactly our focus now. So we're going we're gonna to take on a, a very ambitious uh, topic, which is the future of nothing other than capitalism. And to that end, we're joined today by our special guest, uh, Todd McGowan. And so also joining me here is Rogelio Garcia Contreras, of course, who will introduce our guest. Rogelio, hello. Thank, thank you, Lawrence. How are you? Great. Uh, Great. We're very excited uh, to have Todd with us. Uh, he was part of our author series. Uh, the uh, book that uh, we read back then was Capitalism and Desire. And uh, he was very generous with his time and, and eloquent in his thoughts and we believe that we, we needed to have him uh, back uh, for, for an episode of our podcast. Todd uh, teaches theory and film at the University of Vermont. He is the author of uh, many different books, Universality and Identity Politics, Emancipation After Hegel, Capitalism and Desire, as we mentioned. And he is the co-editor of the Dieresis uh, series with uh, Slavoj uh, Šišek and Adrian Johnston at Northwestern University Press, and the editor of the Film Theory in Practice series at uh, Bloomsbury. He's also the co-host at the Why Theory podcast. Uh, so, Todd, uh, welcome. Welcome to this episode, and thank you for being here with us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to see you two again. Yeah, so capitalism. So I'm I'm a historian, and uh, I I know that large movements and structures like capitalism have histories. They aren't monolithic, universal concepts or or states of being. They change over time, however slowly, and so therefore I they have futures that we can consider. But it's interesting to talk to you about this because your approach to capitalism has been much more about the experience of capitalism for individuals. And, and you've, even though you sort of have a background in philosophy, your, I guess your approach could be more psychological in nature. Yeah. About how the psyche interacts with capitalism, how capitalism interacts with the psyche, right? Like if we wouldn't, I guess my starting point for thinking about it is that it wouldn't be a 
dominant socioeconomic form if it didn't have a certain psychic resonance, right? So that's the, yeah, so that's the basic idea that if capitalism didn't appeal to us psychically in some way, then we wouldn't live in a capitalist society, which we clearly do live in. Yeah. And in your book, Capitalism and Desire, you sort of avoided talking about capitalism in in future terms. I mean, you really are focused on the diagnosing a problem. Like capitalism can manifest as a psychological problem for individuals. Do you want to start there and talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So capitalism relies on a certain fantasy that is inherently unrealizable. So that's the fantasy of some future perfect accumulation or some quantity of accumulation that will deliver me from all my sense of what feeling lacking or feeling like I don't I'm insufficient. And so that 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 promise to me is really necessary to the functioning of capitalism and inherent in the way that it works. And so that's part of the reason why I think its appeal is essentially neurotic, right? Like we it appeals to us because we're invested in a certain fantasy of overcoming the very thing that makes us human, that fact that we're lacking beings. And so if we didn't the the dream of overcoming that is essential to us investing ourselves in capital economy. Like everyone from the, I don't know, the the person mining cobalt in the Congo to Elon Musk, there mm. there's still, if you're in the capitalist system, you're including me, you're invested in this, in this idea of accumulation and overcoming lack. And so I think that's the essential problem. You you argue that capitalism always or or has always let us down in that regard. That that as we accumulate, we never surmount that sense of lacking, but we always have in front of us the promise of more accumulation. In fact, I, I would even say that the more you accumulate, the more you feel like you're lacking. That's why <laughs> you know Jeff Bezos has to go into outer space or what you know, like the the more you get, it's never. And I think this is. This just seems evident. The more you get, the the less you feel like you really have. And so that inability to say enough, really, like I have enough, is symptomatic in my way of analyzing it of the capitalist epoch. But, but at the same time, uh, this lack of ability to say this is enough is exactly what capitalism bets on, right? Like it's never is never enough, therefore the system should keep going to the next best thing, right? So in a way, it's a, yes, it's an unfulfilled promise, but the, just the hope of that promise of maybe one day obtaining it is what keeps us, keeps us going. Is that, is that right? Uh, you're exactly right. It's a great point. I mean, the, the, very, the very lack of fulfillment of the promise is the thing that sustains the capitalist system. Like if somebody ever felt like they got fulfilled, then they would cease to be a capitalist subject. So the, the, the very failure to keep its own promise is what keeps the capitalist system functioning and keeps people invested in it. There's this uh, documentary called Capital based on the book by uh, Thomas Piketty. And in that documentary, they talk about the Monopoly game. And in this Monopoly game, some players are given an advantage. Uh, some of them are throwing the dice uh, twice. Uh, uh, you know, some of them start with some money already and some others start with one throw at the dice and, and uh, just no money uh, whatsoever. And, and as, the, as the game progresses, obviously more often than not, the one that started with certain advantages started accum accumulating faster 
But that's not that's not the issue. The issue is what that accumulation start doing to the uh, players themselves. And uh, those that are losing start feeling that they are falling behind, that they are probably not as smart or as smart as they thought they would be. They start feeling embarrassed about the outcomes of the game. And I find this to be, uh, you know, that when I watch that documentary and I watch that particular um, reference to that studi- uh, study, uh, it reminds me of your book, right? Like what is yeah. not only what, what capitalism it, this, this promise, but what it does for, for us in the sense of our sense of belonging, the mechanisms that we use to connect, all these aspects. It's really true that it doesn't just, your investment in the structure doesn't just, it's not just neutral, right? Like it, it like the structure changes, the capital structure changes you because of your one's investment in it. And I think that that's, and especially you're right, like if you're on top or you're on bottom, that on the bottom, that changes that also changes your how you feel about the about your own worth. But I, I would say something about this, right? Like, it, I think people that tend to be successful in, in the capital system believe that they are smarter. You said the things, right? Smarter, uh, you know, they work harder, and they also think they're more ethical. I think, which which is odd because it seems to me like capitalism is the first socioeconomic system in which to be successful, really, you you have to be not ethical, right? Like it, it, it specifically rewards the people that act the least ethically. Like we can see the success of Donald Trump would be the great example of that. But there, I think there, are, you can see numerous people like the, the, the more you're willing to cut corners, do whatever it takes, that things that other people won't do, the more chance you have of success. So I think it goes even further than that. Actually, capitalism rewards those who have the the least moral compunction about their, what they're going to do. So if that's the case, then I want to push back on this issue of, of the future. Like, is there yeah. is it even possible to talk about from that perspective, I guess, because, again, I'm a historian and I definitely believe we can talk about the future of capitalism. But from yeah. this perspective, what are the horizons for 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 this dynamic? Right, which you sort of couch in almost universalistic terms, but really do have a, a chronological component in that the the range of people who have been integrated into this system, who have or, or have found found a way in or whatever, has has changed over time, has grown over time. Yeah, Lawrence, that's absolutely right. Right, that 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 capitalism was initially confined to a certain geographic area. Now it's utterly planetary. Like even though China's in name communist, it's a it's a it's still a capitalist system. Yeah, that's right. I would just say that part of the thing that really is bringing things to a head today isn't just the psychic dimension of capital, although this affects that. I think it's the the relationship between the limits of production on the planet right. and right. and capitalism, right? Like I think that we're fast approaching a tipping point in which this constant accumulation of more will have such a deleterious effect on the inhabitability of the planet that we no longer will even have be able to have a global capitalist system in the way that we have it now. That is that is really uh, intriguing to me because in a way, uh, this relationship that capitalism has had with nature for the longest time has been one of exploitation and domination, and you know, really an understanding of nature that pertains to a particular sociocultural approach to 
the relationship of human beings with nature as opposed to other cultures where this relationship is more integrated and human beings are as much as part of nature as nature is part of, of us and, and, and the relationship is, is understood a little bit different. And you're mentioning that uh, to some extent capitalism, if, if we cross already that tipping point or if you know, we're very close to cross it, uh, is kind of uh, signing uh, its own death sentence, right? Uh, in a way, I mean, ironically, despite its uh, ability to morph and adapt and tap into other cultures and, and, and be attractive to many, many people, capitalism is somehow, you know, going into, into extinction with the model that... Uh, so vividly defense is, is would that be is that something I, that you share yeah i think that's a good point i mean i think that the global capitalist model i mean we're i think we are seeing movement away from that to these increasingly nationalist movements that are, want to put up barriers and i think you're you're right that there's something intrinsically anti-capitalist to the putting up of the barrier which is makes it an interesting thing right because typically we think of capitalism or the the right on the side of capitalism but it's also the right that is building barriers so it's almost an interesting thing where the left is on the side of capitalism and tearing down barriers so it's that's a weird dynamic well, too but weird, I, I think yeah. you're right that there's a way in which capitalism creates its own annihilation not in the way that marx foresaw like that it creates this proletariat that comes along and overthrows right. capitalism but instead the way in which it comes up against the very limits of of accumulation, the the fact that the capitalist view of the natural world has so dominated that now it would be impossible to go back to a different view and still be a capitalist. Well, it's been pretty interesting as we record this, Great Britain is going through a great deal of political turmoil with uh, changing prime ministers. And, and what was behind that crisis was on the one hand, the consequences of Brexit, precisely the sort of wall building that you were alluding to. And it and it's kind of contradictory in a way, right? In the one sense, you're breaking away from this big, successful European market. But the same people who are promoting that strategy are also promoting economic strategies at home designed to grow a capitalist economy in their own right. country. Isn't this a fascinating, it's just a fascinating moment because basically, trust was thrown out of office by the economic, by the the financial forces themselves, right? Like they, she introduces these tax cuts, the, 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 the financial markets basically say that's unacceptable. And she just, just has to withdraw them. Like, and I think it just shows the limits within the capitalist structure of that kind of national autonomy. And yet your point is exactly right. Like this insistence on Brexit and reasserting our autonomy in the name of growing cap, there's a contradiction there, right? Like the more you try to withdraw and build up the barrier, the, the less you're going to be able to generate excess capital. So there's a that, that that's I think that's a real contradiction that the right is runs into. I mean, Britain is a perfect example. Like how long is the next prime minister going to be? It's going to be a new record for for how short the term is, maybe. I mean, I, I think it's just right. an impossible <laughs> position to be in. Well, it's an interesting Part of the contradiction is this sort of relationship between capitalism and freedom. Now, your your book was Capitalism and Desire, but right, but freedom right. always comes into this because isn't it the case that with acquisition of things, with participation in, in consumerism, 
there is a sense of freedom. Is is that is that not part of the inherent desire of capitalism? Yeah, that's. I, but I I like the way that you use the word sense of freedom, right? Because right. I don't know well, it's that not it's, real freedom necessarily. Yeah, I don't think it's real freedom because I think that isn't this. I mean, the Britain thing is a perfect example. Like, right? They can elect whoever they want, and they can. You think like, oh, our political leaders have autonomy over their policy. Well, wait a minute, they don't. Like the market decide. And the same thing is true in the U.S. Even though the dollar is the international currency. Okay, it's probably going to happen, right? Like there's going to be a Republican Congress and they're going to default on the the debt limit and and then the market's going to punish them. Their actions that they can take as our political leaders elected by popular mandate, et cetera, like their their actions are very limited by financial markets. The same thing is true of the individual. They say like, "Oh, you can get whatever job you want." I have students come out and say, "I really want to be a professor." I'm like, "Sorry, yeah, you're just so th- that you just can't yeah. do that anymore. <laughs> like that's, that's, the market has said that's not going to be a, a job you can do. And I think that capitalism is great at giving at giving people a sense of freedom. How much actual freedom it gives them is up in the air. And I think it's 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 clear that capitalism works with without that much freedom. And I, again, I think China is a perfect example of this. There's not a, there's no political freedom in China at all, except you put up a banner and then you're you're disappeared, right? And but it works fine as a capitalist. Uh, but but I think this this idea of freedom is is really really important, or the sense of freedom, is really important f- for the survival of capitalism. In 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 capitalism and desire, in your book, you actually talk about how capitalism has the support of even those that the system has not benefited. Right? Many believe in the system so passionately. Uh, that the system keeps alive, even if the system doesn't necessarily benefit with all these promise of wealth accumulation or satisfaction through the possession of certain goods, et cetera, et cetera. Some of them not even have access to that. Their purchasing power is limited by this inequality that is also natural to the system. And yet, there is something in there that makes these individuals support the system and, and look at it as the most uh, fair even ethical yeah. way to, yeah. to organize the market economy. I would just say, I don't know that that's, that's unique to the capitalist epoch, right? Like the under feudalism, I think there were a lot of serfs that were as invested in the feudal economic structure as lords were, right? Like I don't, I think it's not uncommon that the people in the most oppressed positions, maybe not most oppressed, but in relatively oppressed positions, are just as invested, if not more so, than the people at the top. I think that, I think that happens pretty often. But I think in, within capitalism, what's what gets the investment is if you don't have much, right? Like you are able to identify with those people who have a lot. You can vicariously enjoy yourself through what they have, maybe even more than they do. Like I think this is how fame functions today, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're able, like the people who are famous are most of them are probably miserable, but they project that they are really enjoying themselves. And I think that that allows people that are in desolate or not so great situations to identify with them and enjoy vicariously through them. So I think that that, that capitalism really facilitates that process. So I think you're really right that the sense of, like, even if you're on the bottom or close to the bottom, you're still feeling invested. And so the ending of your book, if memory serves, is that the way out for individuals has to be as individuals. It has to be about self-reflection and, and recognition of that status. It's not about, for you, it's not about 
some type of overthrow of the system or some revolution. It's a it's a quiet realization for the individual. Well, I think that unless there's individual change, there can't be a collective change. That I just think that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But I also think the converse. Like I think if there's not some collective change, I don't think it necessarily has to be complete elimination of all market economy. Like it could be a certain other kind of economic structure that's operative and capitalism within that, whatever. But as long as there's an investment in the idea of or the promise of accumulation, then we're going to be in the same problem. So I do think that any global collective change has to be psychic. You know, there has to be this psychic disinvestment in that promise of accumulation or else the problem's going to stay the same. And I think, I mean, to me, that's the problem with the whole Marxist idea was that Marx didn't really take into account that there was a psychic dimension to the proletariat. And so the, actually, the pro, his fam, the, you know, famous line, workers of the world unite, all you have nothing to lose but your chains. Well, that's not true. Like people thought they had a lot to lose, which is their psychic investment in the system that yeah. that they were, that they, that Marx thought they should be struggling only against. You're listening to Points of Departure. We'll be right back after this break. Hello, my name is Chris Pulomar-Molejo, and I am a professor of law, economics, and competition law at Pontifical Catholic University of Valparaiso in Chile. Привет, меня зовут Ольга. Я учусь и работаю в Университете штата Луизиана в Баттенруш. Hi, I'm Sarah Lewis. I'm CEO and founder of Edgewater Coaching and Consulting. I'm also an instructor as part of the Environmental Resiliency Program at the University of Arkansas. And I listen. And I listen. Я слушаю Points of Departure. Points of Departure. Points of Departure on KUAF. Do you ever wonder what's going on while you're at work? Maybe the policy decisions happening at the state capitol. What performances are this weekend? Perhaps the latest news on health, local initiatives, infrastructure, or education. Ozarks at Large is your one-stop shop for local news. Listen every day on KUAF or find the complete episodes and individual stories online at KUAF.com. Your other area of expertise is film. So I, and we had this conversation when you when you came to visit for the for the book uh, club, but I but I have a reason for bringing this back up. I promise. So I want to talk about William Shatner. You mentioned uh, Bezos and Musk, and their now their acquisition has taken the form of rockets into space. Yeah. <laughs> and William Shatner rode on one of these rockets, and in his yeah. uh, in in a recent book, he says. I, I just, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he essentially says, I, I saw nothing out there but death. That it was, it was such an epiphany for him. And it, it almost, I don't know what you think of this, but it almost seemed like a moment where he was starting to realize where the end point of that acquisition is. Because here he is, and he's not acquiring things, he's acquiring an experience. But that can right. also be brought into a capitalist dynamic, right? So for him, yeah. and, and for many of us, going to space is the ultimate experience. I mean, how many of us actually get to go and see the blackness of space and the curvature of the Earth and all that cool stuff? And here he is, Captain Kirk, going into space, and he's greatly disappointed and, and even a little terrified in, in an existential sense by what he sees. What do you make of that yeah. as, as, yeah. as a moment of realization? Yeah, I was so 
taken by that and i i just i loved it really like i thought that that i mean i feel bad for him because it really you're right it really seemed to shake him up and traumatize him but i think that capitalism relies on the repression of trauma right and so if we can like embrace that traumatic experience whether it's like the coldness of space and our own death or whatever it whatever it is like i think that there's a way in which we can there's a kind of authenticity in that and there's a kind of resistance to the mass accumulation because you realize however much you accumulate including experiences i think it's, it's totally true that today for a lot of people the accumulation experience replaces or supplements the accumulation of things it's absolutely true the traumatic encounter can really disrupt that impulse to continually accumulate 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 and i, I it's funny that it was shatner too i i thought i don't know if you thought this yourself but i thought you know star trek itself at least the original series was absolutely based on the idea that we are beyond an accumulative society. That's right. Like it, it yeah. is just money is never mentioned. No one ever thinks to take, make a profit on anything. One of the things people say about capitalism is if we get rid of it, we'll no longer have this impulse to explore the world or the universe and, and you know, expand. And I thought one of the things I loved about Star Trek is there's this pure desire to explore just for the sake of exploring and not for the sake of profiteering, right? Could you imagine columbus sailing not to try to gain riches but just to like see what there is out there then the encounter wouldn't have been to enslave people when he got there but to like learn from them right and so but you can think of every almost every nasa astronaut that goes into space does not do so from a from a profit motive right and and always think about the the astronauts that that make the spacewalks to fix things like the hubble telescope where they're essentially risking their lives for a device that really doesn't make money for anybody, maybe a few poster manufacturers, right? <laughs> right but but right. they're they're doing it because they sort of see a different value in it, right? I, I agree, and they also, I mean, like look at what that telescope does, right? Like it it allows us to see our own insignificance, and I think that to me that's an incredibly valuable, just a just a valuable function. We don't have the benefit that that Shatner had of going up into most of us, at least I don't, I, I don't quite have enough funding to uh, hitch a ride up to the, uh, up to low earth orbit and take a look. But uh, what about for the rest of us? We don't get that, that moment of epiphany or that, that terrifying moment. What do you think about the rest of us, the prospect of us reflecting or, or coming out of this as individuals, making the, 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 the break that you mentioned from a psychic sense? Can it happen in any, with any, at any time for anyone with any commodity? Like, I almost would say the disappointment of any commodity could be an epiphany, could be a revelation. Like anybody can have that revelation at any time. So it's constantly available to us. We don't need to go into space to have it. I I, I would like to go back to a couple of points. Um, So many things crossing my mind, but one, one aspect here is, this way in which you put it, Lauren, so beautifully, the, the way in which astronauts perhaps can, and the whole space uh, program could could look at value from a different angle, right? Value generation from a different angle. And I think that's something that needs to happen nowadays. For all we know, Mother Earth is all we have to guarantee our existence. Uh, but we definitely need to start shifting our value proposition into something 
uh, much more comprehensive than just the financial return on our investment. And this takes me to, to, to the point, do you believe that capitalism can adapt itself into something more sophisticated, comprehensive, open-minded, or it, we need a complete shift uh, and, and maybe you know something new that is not based on, on the premises of capitalism? Yeah, I, I don't see how we can, if we still accept the basic structure of capitalism, which to, I would just define it as the dominance of the commodity form, which is the dominance of the promise of ever more, right? Ever increasingly more. I don't see how you can have that be the controlling logic of a society and then include some other kind of more different kind of valuing within that. Because I think we've seen that that kind of valuing, it's like uh, the Borg, like resistance is futile. There's no <laughs> way, to, sorry for all the stuff. I love it. No, so, it's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I think that, you can't still have that be the controlling principle and then try to adjust it. But your point of some other kind of structure, more holistic, yeah, more totalizing, yeah, more, you know, sustainable, that, that is more ethical, is is more just, is more egalitarian, is more free, I would even say, too. Like, for me, I'm very invested in the idea of freedom, and I don't think we should accept the capitalist idea that that's what freedom is. So, so all those things, I think, yeah, and I think that that has to be a different orientation. And again, within that, okay, fine. There's some, there's still exchange going on, and there's still, there's still money changing. That's that seems to me, who cares? But I think, I think there needs to be some kind of larger structural shift that has to happen, uh, because I, I think as long as capitalism is the controlling logic, it, it it's incompatible with another kind of valuing system. Well, that's interesting because that makes me think about the direction of of utopian thought in the 21st century. So, so oh, bear, bear with me here. So, in the in the 20th century, it seems that utopia sort of drains out of Western culture, right? We uh, Star Trek's a rare example of something of of a sort of lingering utopianism, right? But most of the literature and film that we enjoyed in the late 20th century is dystopian, right? But but here in the 20th century, we've sort of seen a resurgence of utopian writing in a variety of ways. And, and one of those ways is in what I think Rutger Bregman would call a um, practical utopia. I don't know. Utopia for realists. Utopia for realists. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you know yeah. this book, Todd, but mm-hmm. uh, is that type of utopia? And I guess what that means is is sort of trying to find the best solutions we can with the world that we live in. But you seem to be suggesting that that's like we're kidding ourselves with that type of thinking. Well, no, I'm not necessarily. I mean, I think that that a, a guy I'm pretty invested in, Frederick Jameson, wrote a book oh, called yeah. American Utopia. Yeah. And that it's similar to what you're talking about, right? Because his idea was, let's universalize the military. Like that's going to, that, which is a lot of people, leftists were like, wait a minute, that's a terrible idea. We don't, <laughs> we don't need more military, we need less. But I think, I mean, I kind of think the political solution always has to be, it has to work with the materials that are at hand. I mean, I think in a certain way, this idea of politics as deus ex machina is one of the things that really damaged the political movements in the 20th century, right? We have a certain vision of things. We're going to force it on the people. Yeah. The people don't want it. They're wrong. It was a nightmare. Yeah. So it creates a context so, for violence, for one thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Total. Right. And not just violence, but like the worst violence in human mm-hmm. history. Right. So 
I like that idea of a realist utopia or like a trying to change, like working with what's given. And then because I don't think you ever know what's going to happen, right? Like say people are invested still in the signifier capitalism, but if we made certain fundamental shifts within it, then would it even still be that? You know, we might find out, well, we were actually, we're not no longer even in what would be called capitalism, even though we, we never were trying to overthrow it. It just so happened we made this change, this change, this change, and then all of a sudden we're in something else. So I think history changes like that all the time. And and this takes me to the other point that I want to bring back, because you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that somehow unethical practices are kind of the norm in capitalism. And, I, I you know, many capitalists, many successful capitalists would probably disagree with that. And, and certainly many that might not be as successful would see this as a, uh, an affront to capitalism and the virtues of hard work and the virtues yeah. of uh, you know, just capitalizing on your talents, right? To what extent do you believe, can we have an ethical version of capitalism? Yeah. Do, do you yeah. believe it's in that? It's a great question. And no, that's my answer is no. Okay. <laughs> because, and I, I give you a great example, I think. Like, what if Apple decided to construct, I noticed you have, is that an, I hope that's an iPhone there because I have one too. Right? So I want to just say that I'm not innocent in this problem. So um, like, what if Apple decided, okay, we're going to construct our phone ethically. We're not going to have kids go down in incredible deep mines in Congo to dig out the cobalt to, fund, to, to, create, to create the batteries, right? We're going to just, everything's going to be above board ethical. We're going to pay people exactly what they need to be paid to create the thing. Like, you know how much your iPhone, I mean, your iPhone would be $10,000. So they, they would, do, <laughs> Apple would be out of business if they tried to do that. So the very unethical exploitation of labor is what makes the iPhone affordable and what makes Apple a successful company. The ethical Apple <laughs> is a non-existent Apple. Think if McDonald's said, you know what, our people, they're working really hard there. They don't deserve minimum wage. Yeah, let's give them 30 bucks an hour and we'll just charge people twice as much for a burger. McDonald's is out of business. Unless your brand is ethical. I do think you can brand yourself as ethical and be an exception. Like Patagonia. Do you know this company? Yes, like yes, Patagonia. Patagonia. Sure. It's a great example, right? Like they brand that you have to pay more. And they even on their website, they're like, are you sure you need a new coat? Buy a used one instead. Don't. And so they're, they're like, part of their advertising is to be against advertising so but <laughs> i'm sure they're genuine i i know that the ceo is a genuine guy but they can only be patagonia as an exception right because they're selling that as their brand and people will pay more for that as a brand it's like organic crap it's the same thing right like or like fair trade coffee any of this stuff so you can only be an ethical capitalist as an exception to the capitalist rule that's sorry for the rants no 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 i think i think this uh, is think this is totally uh, right on this is super interesting because from my perspective that's exactly the the challenge of the whole social enterprise movement, right? I mean, to what extent we can start broadening uh, the conversation, but at what point this conversation has to shift altogether and bring new, new values. And, and the path to that place seems really hard, and the system itself is not proclive to open doors for these kind of interpretations. I, I, I have a a colleague, the chair of my department, uh, Dr. Jason Rich, just published an article uh, where, you know, it shows, if I am uh, remembering correctly, how whenever politicians have 
investments in certain companies, uh, these companies performs perform better in the stock market, right? <laughs> you know, the association that exists yeah. between, you know, all the interests that are created yeah. in the system, very, very difficult to overcome, to, to get rid of. So are you optimistic? Are you optimistic of ever being able to shift this in ways that really make a difference? I think the situation's always open. And so I think, I think there are some really terrible signs today. But on the other hand, I think there's some pretty pretty great signs. Like I think that, you know, I see in students, I don't know how, how you feel about students today, but I, I see them compared to what I was like as a student, they're much more concerned about social justice and, and equality and, and even the, the environment, like things that just were not that were the farthest from my mind. Like I, I, I told the story to the, to the students. I, I, when I was a kid, we, we lived kind of in a rural area and we, we went out with my parents to get McDonald's and we got it in the car. And my dad was just like, we were done, we were done, you know, and he's like, just toss it out the window. <laughs> and, and my students were just in total shock that I, and they thought, they thought I'd like, this was 40, 50 years ago. And they still, they still thought I was morally horrible because I had thrown this McDonald's garbage out the window of a car. So I feel like that's a good sign. Like that's a good, like there is there. So I think, I do think there are these good signs of, for just care, like care seems to me it's a thing now. It's a, it's cool to care about things. And I think when I was a kid, it wasn't, it was cool not to care about what you were destroying or what was happening. So I think I'm optimistic about that, but I do realize the weight of the system. I mean, that's, that's what your question is really about. And I think that that's still just as incredibly powerful against any force of, of change. Yeah. That makes me wonder if the, these forms of change can only exist as an exception like Patagonia. And even if they exist uh, and by virtue of volume, they stop being an exception, are we going to be on time <laughs> to, to shift? Right, 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 right. Because right, yeah. the time is the time is pressing. It's, it's absolutely correct. Wow, this is great conversation. Tom McGowan, thanks so much for your time talking to us today on Points of Departure. Thank you, Todd, for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. It was incredible, incredible fun for me. You've been listening to Points of Departure. Your hosts are Rogelio Garcia-Contreras and Lawrence Hare. I'm producer Daniel Carruth. Points of Departure is a podcast production of KUAF Public Radio and Arkansas Global Changemakers. For more information, you can go online to KUAF.com. lot of information on demand from KUAF's podcasts, but you can get even more from listening to KUAF on air. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. When you listen to KUAF's live programming feed, you get the latest news from NPR programs like Morning Edition, 1A, and All Things Considered, local weather forecasts throughout the day, news about events happening in Northwest Arkansas, and unique music programming on the weekends you won't find anywhere else. Listen for free on your radio at 91.3 FM, at our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF.